The Lord be with you. Reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you remain in my word, you will truly be my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say, You will become free? Jesus answered them, Amen, amen, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in a household forever, but a son always remains. So if the son frees you, then you will truly be free. I know that you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no room among you. I tell you what I have seen in the Father's presence, then do what you have heard from the Father. They answered and said to him, Our father is Abraham. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You are doing the works of your father. So they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and am here. I did not come on my own, but he sent me. The Gospel of the Lord. This long conversation that Jesus has been having with the Jews in Jerusalem continues today. It's been going on in our gospel readings over the last several days. We have been listening to it in stages, but it is one lengthy conversation as it is recorded in chapter 8 of St. John's Gospel. And we see again that everything turns on the issue of one's willingness to accept Christ. But the ability to accept Christ also turns on whether one's heart is truly given to God or not. What an interesting issue that is. In fact, we have this curious development at this point. You notice how the Gospel reading began? Jesus said this to those Jews who believed in him. We would think then that we're on a positive relational framework. And a few sentences later, he looks at these same Jews and says, but you're trying to kill me. What an interesting statement about belief that that really proves to be. 
And so to draw near to it, the church gives us as well the first reading from the book of Daniel. This account of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three young men. Young men exiled, but raised in the Babylonian court and given a certain favor by King Nebuchadnezzar because of their talent and their wisdom and their skill. And so it is that he erects an idol and gives the command that everyone must bow before the idol that he has created on pain of death. And everyone does so except for these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this puzzles the king at first because he likes these guys. They're among his favorites. But he has given his order. And so when he comes to them and says, you need to do this, and they refuse, He's puzzled and he grows angry. His pride is wounded. His sense of authority is wounded. He feels as well unappreciated by these three that he has done things for. So there is a lot going on in the heart of this king. Mighty among the kings of the earth. Wealthy among the kings of the earth. This is the king who has conquered Israel and destroyed the temple. And he doesn't understand this reaction. And so he doubles his threat saying, by my order, which I can't take back now, you will die. Who can save you from me? You have no power and no authority other than what I've given you. The only reason you're still alive is that I have protected you all along, and now I remove that protection and I will cast you out. Who can save you? What God do you have that will defend you? But an interesting question, especially when it's answered by the guy who destroyed that God's temple. There's no king on David's throne right now because Nebuchadnezzar pulled him off. So this is not an empty question. To all intents and purposes, it seems that Israel's God has withdrawn and abandoned Israel. That Israel's God has given everything into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And so when he asks that question, it is not merely earthly arrogance in his voice, although there is a lot of that too. In love with his own power, in love with his own wealth and his own status. And so he says, who can save you? What God will save you from my hand? And the answer of the three young men is stunning. Their answer is, no, we're not doing it anyway. Our hearts belong to our God, and we will not give them to another. And then they say, and if he's going to save us, he'll save us. And if he won't, that's okay too. Now think about that for a minute. 
Think about that for a minute. Those young men enter the furnace not because they're convinced that God will definitely rescue them. They enter the furnace because they are his and they will belong to no one else. What a powerful personal position this is. We love God and we will be faithful to him not because of what he will do for us, but because he is our God and we belong to him. There's a point of just incredibly deep spiritual maturity here that has rooted itself in these three. Our life is shaped by him. Our life belongs to him. We will give it to no one else. And so take it if you can, but we will not belong to your God. How easily we sell who we are out for lesser things, don't we? We lay our faith aside for the sake of a moment's convenience. We compromise so easily for economic issues. We compromise so readily for political gain. We compromise so readily because we don't want someone to think differently of us. And here are these three. The furnace is being stoked. They're being bound. No earthly power can rescue them, and the king is making this as unpleasant as it can possibly be for them. All of the might of Babylon is sending them into that white-hot furnace. And their answer is, God will save us, or he won't. but we're going. What a powerful position. That statement of to whom one belongs and that that belonging is a greater thing than allowing one's life to continue even one moment longer without him. They do not enter the furnace afraid of death. They do not enter the furnace afraid of being abandoned. They enter that furnace knowing to whom they belong. And they enter it in the peace of that belonging. The responsorial psalm is the prayer they sang in the furnace. That hymn, glorifying God, blessed be God above all forever, that is the great hymn of thanksgiving that rose out of the furnace while they were in it. It wasn't rescue us, it is blessed are you, our lives have been dedicated to giving you honor. That is how we enter the furnace. That is how we die, that is how we die. And we see then that this becomes how they live. Entering the furnace with a hymn of praise on their lips, the power of heaven stands at their side. And they escape free and unharmed. 
and even the pagan king must acknowledge the wonders that the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego has done. Coming back then to our gospel reading, what has been going on through this long series of interchanges in chapter 8, and it comes to a head today, is that question of, do the Jews, does Israel know who it really is anymore? Or have we lost sight of that? And so we have this insistence as they speak to Jesus, we know who we are. And Jesus saying, no, in fact, you don't. You believe you know who you are, and you believe things about yourself, but you've deceived yourselves, and the truth is not in you. I speak the truth, and you recoil, you resist, you look for an alternative viewpoint, because you are not open to the truth, you are open to defining yourself. And what a dangerous trap that is. What a dangerous trap that is. It's that, that false idol that the Nebuchadnezzar of this world who lives inside of our hearts sets up for us. That golden image that we can create for ourselves, my ideals, my goals, what I want from life. And while these are not bad questions, it is dangerous when they become our exclusive and our dominant questions. Because when we set up that idol in our own hearts, then what, we, what do we do? Everything else in my life must bow down to it. Everything else in my life must bow down to it. And it happens sometimes in very prosaic ways. I've spent all my life building a business, and everything about myself revolves around that. It's not that building a business is bad, but then that becomes the ordering principle, and even my faith, sooner or later, is pressed into the service of what I am accomplishing. There are how many who parents, loving parents, who lose themselves in the lives of their children. It's not that loving our children and raising them well is a bad thing. But when that becomes the center and the focal point of my life, this is how, uh, this is how we get to that odd world where my children's sports are all on Sunday morning and therefore the family can't get to Mass. Um, you know, these things that we erect in our hearts that begin ordering our lives, and often they're good things. But what happens is, sooner or later, the idol is there and the command is made that everything must bow before it. And if we don't, the authority of the idol lashes out and attacks what doesn't. Jesus is refusing to bow before the idols in the hearts of those to whom he is speaking, even those, we hear in the gospel, who believe in him. And what he is doing is he wants to speak through that initial belief, that initial fascination, that initial attraction to that deeper place in the heart. 
beyond all idolatry, beyond all personal convenience, to remind us to, of to whom we belong, and that belonging to God means more than just looking at all the things God does for us. It involves looking at all the ways our lives should be ordered by him. All the way, you know, to look at all those ways we can offer ourselves to him. What a different way of looking at things, isn't it? So much of the way we speak about faith and spirituality, if we're honest, begins and all too frequently ends on the level of self-interest. God will do this for you. God will do this for me. God loves me so much he does X, Y, and Z for me. God will help me when I need him. That's all true. That's all true, but none of that calls me out of myself. None of that flips the script and says, and how will I glorify the Lord? How will I thank the Lord? How will I express my belonging to the Lord? What will I do for the Lord? What will I do for his kingdom? And as Jesus speaks, and he touches that part of the heart, it shouldn't surprise us that there's a certain reluctance that he meets, because that calls us to move and step out of our own personal center, that the Lord might be there, and to order our lives to him. And those parts of my heart that are used to bowing before the idols that I set up in there don't necessarily want to change direction. They're used to how that works. They know how that works. They understand how that works. Turning around and moving in the other direction and doing something else, that's difficult. And that's challenging. But that's also what sets us free. And the Lord is essentially saying to us, all too often those elements of our lives that we make our peace with, that uncomfortable peace we often make, or that all too easy and convenient peace we make, that complacent peace we make, where we say, no, 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 I'm doing okay, and we live with just being okay. The Lord is saying, in the end, that's making us slaves. It's a false freedom. I have the illusion of power and agency and effectiveness, but I don't belong to that one who gives me real freedom. I don't belong to that one and that only one who can show me what the fullness of life is. And we have this reading today twinned with that reading from the, Gospel of Dan from the book of Daniel, because the Lord is also insisting, I know exactly who I am, and I don't change for you any more than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to change for Nebuchadnezzar. I don't change for you. And so note, the three young men were bound and taken into the furnace with a prim of praise on their lips, and the Lord delivered them. But Jesus will go to the cross, and he will stretch out his arms, and he will deliver himself to that sorrow and to that suffering because he knows exactly to whom he belongs. He is his father's son.
and he will be no one else. And because he is his father's son, he himself, greater than that angel that was sent from heaven, is that one whom heaven sends even into the grave to free us and to lift us out. What a remarkable thing that is. I am the one, the Lord says, who will free you from the chains your idols put on you. I am the one who will free you from your fear and your woundedness. Because I will never be anyone other than who I am. The implication then is, who are we going to be? Who are we going to be? And we have what a beautiful and challenging example we have in our readings today. And as we have that question of who are we going to be, in just a minute, we're going to come forward and he's going to be in our hands. He's going to be in our mouths. We're going to receive him. And it seems opportune to remind ourselves of that beautiful statement St. Augustine said when he was quite taken by what happened when he was distributing Holy Communion. And he looked out and he saw that he was holding the body of Christ in his hand and that the body of Christ was coming forward to receive. The body of Christ comes forward to receive the body of Christ. And recognizing that, the holy bishop said to the people, receive who you are and become who you receive. Amen.